Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Bryony. And I'm Patricia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in June in this cosmic diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Astronomically speaking, Northern Hemisphere summer begins this month on the 21st of June as we hit the summer solstice. Interestingly enough, the summer solstice doesn't actually have the earliest sunrise or latest sunset time of the year. Those actually occur on the 17th and 25th of June respectively, but the summer solstice is the longest day of the year. On this day, London will have over 16 and a half hours of daylight. Compare this to the southernmost capital city in Australia, Hobart, in Tasmania. There it will be the winter solstice, and people in Hobart will only get around nine hours of daylight on the 21st. That's about 54% of the daylight hours that we'll be getting in London. It's relatively well known that in some Arctic regions there are weeks and even months where the sun does not set. But did you know that the UK will not experience proper astronomical night for the entirety of June? This is because the sun will not dip far enough below the horizon for the sky to darken beyond to true night and will instead remain in what is called astronomical twilight. With the sky never reaching full astronomical darkness, you definitely want to spend your time looking high overhead for the best chance of spotting anything. See if you can find Draco the dragon, with its body and tail coiling around Ursa Minor and its head facing towards Lyra and Cygnus. The two bright stars of Rastaban and Altanen are the dragon's eyes and are very close to the bright star Vega. Rastaban is a yellow-white coloured bright giant or supergiant star and it's almost 1,000 times as luminous as our sun. Eltonen, on the other hand, while it appears similarly very bright, it's a lot more orange in colour. At various points in history, six stars have been thought to be companions to Eltonen, but further observations have ruled all but one out. Rastaban is known to be a double star system, but with the two stars that make up Rastaban being separated by a mere thousandth of a degree, you will need an extremely good telescope to resolve them. If you do happen to have a good telescope, then you could try that, or perhaps a prettier target would be the famous Cat's Eye Nebula, which you can find nestled in the loops of the dragon. We will also be returning to Draco later this year when it comes time for the Draconid's meteor shower in October. A very special event is on the cards on the 10th of June, a solar eclipse, or specifically this time an annular solar eclipse. A solar eclipse occurs when the moon passes directly between the sun and the earth, blocking the sun's rays for a short amount of time. There are several different types of eclipse, total, partial, and annular. A total solar eclipse occurs when the moon totally blocks the sun for some part of the earth. A partial eclipse occurs when only part of the sun is blocked, but the meaning of annular eclipse maybe isn't quite so obvious. 
In this case, the moon does not completely block the sun, but instead there is a thin ring or annulus of light visible around the moon, sometimes called the ring of fire. The annular eclipse will only be visible for those living in a ring around the Arctic Circle, but those living in the northern part of the northern hemisphere will still get to see a partial solar eclipse, including those living in the UK. Maximum obscuration of the sun for those of us in the UK will occur sometime between 11.10am and 11.25am on the 10th of June, with between 20 and 49% of the sun being obscured, depending on where in the UK you are. Basically, the further northwest, the better your eclipse. First contact between the moon and the sun will occur at around 10 a.m. BST for London, with the point of greatest partial eclipse occurring at 11.13 a.m. BST. If you're in London like Patricia and I, you're only going to get about 20% of the sun obscured. So even if it's a clear day, you won't actually notice a large change. It's worth noting, no matter where you are, do not look directly at the sun to see the eclipse, not even with sunglasses. You will damage your eyes. Instead, we recommend using pinhole projection, a cheap method of eclipse viewing which requires only a piece of cardboard and a sheet of white paper. Details on how to make a pinhole projector will be on our Night Sky Highlights blog, so if you're interested, head there after listening to this podcast. This month, the full moon is called the Strawberry Moon and falls on the 24th of June. To see it, you'll need an excellent view of the southern horizon, as it will not rise until about 9.30pm, and at its highest point, around 1am, the moon will only be about 13 degrees above the horizon. Planets will be hard to spot this month due to the long days, but if you've got a good view of the northwestern horizon, you might just be able to spot Mars and Venus as they set just after the sun. But please do be careful of your eyes, though. If you're willing to stay up until the wee hours of the morning, then you can also set your sights on Jupiter and Saturn in the southeast. Early in the month, Saturn will be rising at about 1am with Jupiter following around 45 minutes later. But towards the end of the month, you'll only have to stay up until midnight to catch a glimpse of the gas giants. As winter is coming in for the Southern Hemisphere, there are plenty of targets for both naked eye and telescopic observing throughout this month. Look towards the east-northeast around 8pm, not too far above the horizon, and see if you can spot the bright white star Altair. Altair is actually one of the closest stars to us, being only 16.7 light years away, and is part of the constellation of Aquila, the Eagle. While looking at Altair, pivot so that you are facing east-southeast, and at around the same altitude, you should be able to see the planet Saturn, sitting in the constellation Capricornus. Those with telescopes should also take advantage of the darker nights to find NGC 6751, the Dandelion Puffball Nebula, which can be found just above the top of Aquila, a little to the east of the red-coloured carbon star V Aquila. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. 
course, every month. Bryony and I will pick a story uh, that's broken in astronomy or space exploration and we'll talk to you about that particular story. And then because it's not a competition at all between the two of us, we then launch a poll on Twitter so that you can vote for your favorite stories. Now, there is a very important question I have to ask at this point to our listeners, which is, what do you think of Jingle 2.0? So yes, Bryony and I are experimenting with a little bit of sort of nice music leading into the cosmic news part of our podcast. So let us know what you think. So we do we keep the jingle in? Do we try Jingle 3.0? Let us know. Which one do we prefer? I mean, I'm I'm happy to continue whipping up things on my free music software. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I should point that out that Bryony has been the one putting together the wonderful jingles. So yes, so I've, I, we, we're ha- I mean, if Bryony's happy, we we could go through various iterations of the the jingles. And bear in mind, we were both obviously uh, you know science students. And if your file naming convention was anything as bad as mine, you had version v two underscore revised underscore one underscore a dash date, and then various iterations thereof so that we yeah. could really go through many jingles at this point we really could I mean to be fair for my thesis the final one for my thesis was thesis underscore final underscore one underscore final underscore capital final so I take it that was the final version of your thesis <laughs> I know I'm slightly concerned that I've said that that perhaps our listeners might have to put a stop to it at some point and say okay we really like that one you don't need to change it anymore but look Bryony's up for the challenge let's let's see how far we can push that file naming convention on the computers <laughs> but speaking coming back speaking about that Twitter poll of course I'm sure Bryony are you curious about last month's results I am curious to hear what people have to say. I mean, I think there were some pretty interesting stories. I know mine was a bit outside astrophysics. So I'm curious to see what our listeners thought. Well, to recap, uh, last month, Bryony, you spoke about muons behaving badly, which I thought was a, was a nice description of what was going on. So based on results that have come through from some particle accelerator experiments, muons are making us scratch our head. And I spoke about uh, NASA's InSight lander that had detected some quakes on Mars. So the Twitter poll results are as follows. So with 63% of the votes, the winning story is Mars quakes. Can't get past Mars quakes. I mean, can't with with a title like Mars quakes. I mean, I can't I can't exactly blame anyone. I I can't remember if I cut this out or not, but we were saying that it should be a major motion picture. And this just proves it. It it does. I certainly would go and watch a movie called Mars Quakes. I mean, I watched a movie called Mars Attacks, so like I can't. Well, I mean, that in itself could be a subject of an entire podcast uh, chat, I think, because that movie. I mean, I think think it's it's supposed to take place off air, you know, like probably. It's it's okay. It's okay. But I know that so much has happened within the, the past month. And so I thought it'd be nice for you to sort things off, Bryony. So what have you chosen for us for this month? While my story does talk about well, a bit about space exploration, it's not human space exploration. It's ah. well, you see, it's to do with one of your and one of my favorite missions out there uh, that uh, that is the Voyager. Oh, Voyager. I, yeah, I do have a soft spot for, for Voyager. Both of them. Uh, I'm not going to say this. I have a favorite. I'm going to just say both of them. (laughs) (laughs) 
they're both they are both amazing. I mean, they were launched in uh, 1977. Uh, they were actually originally planned to be part of a much larger mission, but because the space shuttle was just starting to be built and a lot of funding was being diverted into that, they decided to scale it back a bit. And so that's why we ended up with just Voyager 1 and 2 rather than um, they we were actually originally planning to have four. It was going to be part of the Mariner program, but uh, you know, the scope of the mission changed dramatically. And what we have is Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Now, they are two very special, I, I mean, I say little things going out there, and they're pretty little by today's standards. But, I mean, we're still talking about a probe that has a, a dish that is 3.8 metres in diameter, has two 10-metre probes. It also has its boom with its power supply it consists of three thermoelectric power generators. Like it's it's still a pretty beefy boy. It's still over 800 kilograms once you've added everything in. So it's still pretty heavy, but all things considered, it is incredibly lightweight in many ways. So before I talk about the new stuff that's coming out from Voyager 1 in particular, let's talk a little bit more about, I guess, what it's running on, because I think this is something that's quite interesting, I think, the fact that it's running on this thermoelectric power source, which is basically a, a huge chunk of plutonium, plutonium-238. Now, plutonium-238 is famously radioactive. Now, the thing with radioactive things is they have half-lives and they slowly decay. And that's actually the main issue with the Voyager missions. Well, not the main issue, but one of the issues with the Voyager missions, uh, in that currently they have a roughly 70% of their plutonium left, which is enough for them to generate enough power to run some, some very specific instruments, but not all of their instruments, not by a long shot. And it's still enough for it to send transmissions back to us, but that's not going to be the case forever. So while we are still getting information from this thing that was launched back in the in the 70s, We've probably only got another 20 years or so uh, before we just are going to run out of power completely, maybe even less, in fact. it's. I, I mean, I have to say, though, that is still super impressive to to have a spacecraft that was built, you know, in the 70s, launched in the 70s, that albeit I know it's not fully operational in terms of all the original instrumentation that was on board, but the fact that it is still somewhat operational. It is still communicating back, you know, home with the Earth. And the fact that you said it could still go on, fingers crossed, for another 20 years. Wow. It really is amazing that we can still communicate with the Voyager probes. As of right now, let me just get up the website. Okay, so as of right now, Voyager 1, I'm looking at NASA's continuing feed for Voyager. It is currently just over 22,749,000,000 kilometers away from the Earth. So it's about 152 AU away from the Earth, which is... It's far. It's a bit of a distance, yeah. It's quite, it is the furthest man-made object in the universe. It, it has officially left our solar system. Now, that actually occurred a little while ago, but recently, in its travels through interstellar space, we've started to get some very interesting data, and that's what I want to talk about today. So, interstellar space, what is it? So, you would like to think, well, okay, it's interstellar space. It's the space between the stars, interstellar. So uh, it's, well, it, it's space, right? It's a vacuum, yeah? Yeah. So it should, it's empty, surely. 
Well, that's the thing. It's really, really not in many, many ways. So when we have a look at space, while space is famously spacious, there's also quite a lot going on in there. Now, our sun ejects just a lot of stuff. Some of it we like, some of it we don't like. And a lot of the stuff we don't like forms part of the solar wind. Now, the solar wind is sort of, it's mostly blocked by our magnetosphere. Our, our atmosphere helps stop us from being damaged by it. But there's, there's a lot of quite nasty stuff in there. This solar wind, it continues out past us here on the Earth. It just continues on and on out through space. Now, they're very, very energetic particles, ionized particles that could do a lot of damage to humans. And in fact, it is one of the kind of large, uh, I guess, large issues with space travel. Yeah. But this is nothing compared to the high energy particles you find in space, compared to the cosmic rays that you find in interstellar space. So interstellar space is outside the region of influence of our sun, at least if we're talking about the, you know, the very local interstellar medium, as, as it's called in this paper, which I think is great. The, not just the local, but the very local. The very local. <laughs> as you travel out away from the sun, you still have this solar wind and it's still traveling. Now, as it gets away from the sun, it starts to slow down. And there is a point at which it will be slower than the speed of sound. And we call that point the termination shock. Now, both voyages have passed the termination shock quite a while ago. Uh, it took a little bit to confirm, okay, yep, they're past the termination shot, but they're, they're still then within the heliosphere of the suns. They still have that solar wind around them. You know, they're still part of our solar system, if you will. But there is a point called the heliopause, which is where we kind of officially really say the solar system ends, where our region of, our sun's region of influence ends and interstellar space begins. Because as these particles on the solar wind reach this point they kind of it's not sure we're not sure whether they properly slow down and stop before it becomes interstellar space and then it becomes a whole different series of mechanisms take over but that's sort of like a, a nice way of looking at it so yeah. voyager crossed uh, voyager one crossed the heliopause in 20 i think actually crossed it in 2012 yeah and it has been traveling through interstellar space ever since so in interstellar space, like I said, there is still a whole lot of stuff and a lot of quite high energy cosmic rays. Now, there's a lot of plasma out there. Plasma is, it's a very strange state of matter. It's ionized gas. That's one way of looking at plasma, but that's not all plasma is. Yeah. Something that's quite interesting, uh, at least from a condensed matter physics point of view, which of course is what I always like to take, is that a lot of materials don't have to be fully plasmas to exhibit plasma properties. So something can be only partially plasma and still exhibit most properties of plasma, which is fascinating. Um, but sort of by the by here, because what we're really talking about is what this stuff is. Like it's plasma, it's plasma-like enough for us to call it plasma, but what is it? I mean, we know it's made of like electrons, it's got some other stuff in it, but what actually is in there? And not just that, but what's happening with it. Is it completely still yeah Are there any movements happening is there anything growing in it you know like Ooh, what's, yeah. what's going on you know we think that star birth happens in dense molecular clouds which occur within the interstellar medium you know is there some mechanism that we can find in this plasma and so that's a question that's really hard to answer because famously it's far away. The Voyager probes though now they have properly reached it and now that they are in the interstellar medium 
we can actually start to take data about it and not just take data about events that happen in it, but just about it on the whole. You know, imagine if you have a camera that's pointing at something and every time it sees movement, it takes a picture. Then that's all well and good. But what about when there's nothing moving? What then? You know, yeah, so, so you're not seeing the whole picture. You're not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so while we can detect there's there's like a solar flare or if there's like a lot of oscillations through the plasma, then we can detect those events. And we do not just with Voyager, but with telescopes. But the question is, what about the rest of the time? You know, are there, is there stuff we've, that we're missing? And this new research, when they've studied three years in particular of Voyager 1's life or travels through the interstellar medium, and they have found this very, very narrow band, quite low frequency signal that just is always there, which is kind of strange because Voyager has traveled over 10 AU, 10 astronomical units in that time, and the signal has not changed. It has remained at this relatively constant, about three, three to 3.25 kilohertz throughout that whole time. So this tells us that this signal isn't coming from some local disturbance. I mean, it's still in the very local interstellar medium, but it's not local to Voyager. That's, that's, that, that's not something that's causing this disturbance because it is continuing throughout. It's punctuated by these uh, larger plasma oscillations that they see, uh, mostly triggered by solar flares or maybe some other events that they're not quite pinned down on yet. But this sort of background hum is still there. And so this background hum tells us that there is a lot more movement through the very local interstellar medium than we thought. And and the great thing about this is we wouldn't have known that without having Voyager 1 at least and I obviously have, at some point I suppose we might start to see similar stuff maybe or maybe well, not I mean, from Voyager 2. In a different direction. So yeah so that would be very out. interesting but and, and so that's really amazing that we could do that. Especially considering if we have a look at these signals that we are receiving from Voyager 1. So it's it, it did its last powered maneuver a little less than a decade ago. And what that maneuver did is it fired one of its thrusters to keep its antenna pointing towards us here on the Earth so that we could continue to receive data from it. So yeah. one thing, that's how old we're talking. This thing is just like going straight forward. We're just trying to make sure that it keeps pointing towards us because if we have any slight misalignment, then we can't get it because what we are using is we are using um, NASA's deep space network of various uh, various dishes. There's one in Tidbinbilla in Canberra and there's one in California and then there's one somewhere else. I don't remember where everything is. I, I think just it's Madrid. I think in Madrid is one of the tracking stations, is it? Yeah, maybe. I d I, it's not Australia. I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> That's a lie. I do care. And I will look it up after this, just so that I do know. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, we've been tracking this thing through interstellar space. The signals that we are getting back, the power of them is about 0.1 billion billionth of a watt. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's oh, that's tiny, tiny, tiny amount. Um, yeah, so it's it's honestly absolutely ridiculous. So the amount of energy that is required to keep Voyager transmitting is actually about the same as is required to keep a fridge light bulb on. Ah, 
Yeah. So it's, weirdly, in my mind, I was expecting it to be a lot more, and I don't know why. So I'm I'm somewhat impressed that it's only enough. You, you only need the same amount of power of fridge light bulb. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the main issue with it is the fact that it gets attenuated so much. It it just we we do not we cannot continually measure it as it gets further and further away. It's going to get weaker and weaker. And yeah, yeah, that's that's a big issue as well as Voyager running out of fuel. Yeah. I mean, we've still got hopefully another few years of measurements through the interstellar medium to try to ascertain what is going on because with information about these plasma oscillations from that, we can infer information about the density, about the temperature, uh, and maybe if we try to look at some compositions and stuff as well, which is yeah. just amazing because this is this is interstellar space. Like this is not yeah. a system and it is so different. Like you can genuinely see in the data, if you have a look um, at the cosmic rays that Voyager is being exposed to, it increased by about 25% between the years, between the termination shock and the heliopause, naturally like three years. But then between um, the heliopause and now it increased by like, two percent per month for like a year solid okay like we went up like the same amount in one year as yeah that's like you know so that gives you some idea of that it's very much far from home now and far away from this little i, I sort of want to say um a protective bubble so to speak <laughs> in a sense weirdly you know it, 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 well i mean we are we are in a protective bubble here on earth we have our ozone layer and our magnetosphere and our atmosphere and then our solar system is in its protective bubble the helio sheath yeah and voyager well both voyager one and two they are long out of it it's, it's still it still blows my mind trying to process I, you can't and i think that's the thing is you can't even imagine this you, you cannot picture it in your mind this probe that's just heading out it's yeah, just it's, going it is traveling at 17 or well, over 17 kilometers per second okay so it's it's moving so, i mean very yeah, quickly you would say that it's relatively fast you know relatively fast well, now you've got me thinking about the, I, I mean, obviously I, I'd have to read up whether, oh, what its lifespan would be. But now I'm starting to wonder about something like New Horizons, whether that potentially could effectively do the same in X number of years time. Because New Horizons, of course, is not coming back. It's no. also on a one-way trip out the solar system. Well, that is something that's really quite interesting, I think. So if you have a look at the mission, I guess, brief for the Voyager missions, for example. Uh, Voyager 1, it was actually one of the first gravity-assisted manoeuvres. It went around Jupiter, took a look at Io um, and and Ganymede and Callisto as well, and then shot to Saturn, had a bit of a look around Saturn and Titan, and then it left the plane of our solar system and it's just been going up ever since. Voyager 2, however, did another manoeuvre at uh, Saturn and went on to the ice giants of Uranus and Neptune, and then it left the plane of our solar system again. But I'm not sure, did New Horizons ever leave the plane of our solar system? I guess it would have had to to look at Pluto. But has it continued past that? Oh, that's that's an interesting point. That's something I'm going to have to have a look at because I, I don't actually know the answer to that question, Marnie. Yeah, I mean, either way, it's going to be many, many years before it even reaches the termination shock, let alone the heliopause and then... Yeah into interstellar space but you know once we get there hopefully we will have been able to look at this data from voyager and say okay well new horizons 
we want you to look at this because to be fair with Voyager we're not exactly giving it instructions like one of the last instructions we gave it like I said was you know reorient yourself slightly before that one of uh, I mean I think there are a couple of small corrections but the last big thing would have been to turn around to take a picture of our solar system which is the very famous family portrait picture from which Carl Sagan uh, got his famous pale blue dot yeah which is beautiful um but after that, they turned off the camera and they pointed it out and they really haven't tried to move it since. We can't really tell it to do a lot of stuff. We're really just saying, hey, send us what you've got. Most of its machines have just shut down because either to preserve power or just because they're getting old. Not just that, but there's nothing to take pictures of out there. Like it's not going to ever be close enough to something yeah. ever again. I mean, maybe it will continue in like maybe in 10,000 years, I think is when it's scheduled to maybe hit a star. But, you know, apart from that, it's not going to ever get close enough to anything to take a picture of it ever again, which is kind of sad in some ways. But that doesn't mean it can't do science. And I think that that is really great. And of course, it's our envoy out into the universe containing the uh, famous golden record. So in case someone comes across this, and I'm not going to go into a Star Trek joke at this point. I was going to (laughs) say... Do not, do not make me talk about the golden record. I love that thing. It's amazing. I mean, you have pulsar timing, you have like the hyperfine transition of hydrogen. It's amazing. Maybe that'll be a topic for for another podcast, Bryony. Maybe. Maybe. Bryony talks about the golden record for 12 hours. I mean, I'm not going to complain because I find it really fascinating as well. And I think the thing for me is really like trying to imagine some intelligent life form finding this and going, what are they trying to tell me? (laughs) Well, you see, that's the thing though. That's what I think is so fascinating about it, that it is, it's meant to be both incredibly incomprehensible and comprehensible. So for example, um, the hyperfine transition of of hydrogen, hydrogen atom, it's, it occurs at a very, very specific frequency, has a very, very specific wavelength. And so with that, you can have a unit of time and a unit of distance. And so that gives you a fundamental unit that you can then use for everything else i'm going to stop there but suffice it to say voyager is amazing voyager's still doing amazing science and we've still got stuff to learn from it well i think that was a a brilliant choice for this month uh briny telling us about well talking first of all talking about the spacecraft that we both have a soft spot for but i think also just to let people know about the science that it is still doing because that often surprises a lot of people when you say oh we're still communicating with voyager and it's still sending data back to us so that's a i really liked this month's uh story brian I, I don't know how how am i going to go up against that how am i going to go up against that story maybe i should just give up i'm not going to talk <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah you know that's look we'll just why don't we just go back to the golden record and we'll just talk about that for the rest yeah of yeah i mean i don't need to talk about my my topic for this month no, i want to hear about your topic <laughs> i always like hearing about yours well this month Bryony, i'm staying close to home and by close to home i mean within our solar system so i haven't ventured as far out as as you have to be fair you cannot venture as far as i have if you want to be staying within the realms of human space travel (laughs) well funny you should mention that brian um so yeah we've we're going to be touching on a little bit of space exploration not not human though but before i get into my story i want to do a little dive into history so earth history okay and 
if you were back in the 1930s and you were wandering around, someone might come up to you, Bryony, and say, oh, you've got lots of moxie, kid. And you'd have been like, well, I'm very, I'm very happy about that because uh, moxie was a word that sort of came in as a slang term to describe someone who has courage or determination. And I can tell you that of not someone else, but something else that has moxie. Has a lot of moxie. Oh my, I know exactly what you're talking about because I remember reading when they first announced this, reading the name and being like, what literature nerd decided to, to, to name it this? Because this is the kind of thing that you read in all books up to a certain point when all of a sudden everyone's like moxie is a stupid word (laughs) well so maybe you've probably you've obviously guessed exactly where I'm heading with this but the something else that has moxie is NASA's Perseverance rover and as you well and as you may have been starting to suspect there's a little bit more to perseverance's moxie than meets the eye and that's because moxie is an instrument on board the rover it's a technology demonstration we've we've, there's a lot of that happening uh, on mars at the moment and as you've probably guessed moxie is an acronym and i'm going to read this because i'm going to get it very wrong if i don't read it off my uh, notes here Um, it's an acronym that stands for mars oxygen in situ resource utilization experiment which is quite a mouthful so let's stick with Moxie, I think. Something tells me that that was very much a backronym. That uh, the, <laughs> I think the acronym so. was the beginning point. Yes, and then we just came up with the words to give us uh, to give us the said acronym. But to be fair, we do that a lot. In we uh, do, we do. We we're we're fond of our of our acronyms um, in astronomy and space exploration. Now, Moxie has done something brilliant. And something that's really important if we're going to send humans to Mars one day. Moxie has successfully converted some of the thin Martian carbon dioxide rich atmosphere into oxygen. And it's the first instrument to actually produce oxygen on another world inside our solar system. And I think that is, that is again, mind-blowing. Now, Moxie was able to produce just over five grams of oxygen. Now, I know that that might not sound like a lot, but five grams is equivalent to around 10 minutes worth of breathable oxygen for an astronaut. Wow, that is actually quite a lot. I mean, I can do a lot in 10 minutes. Well, so so this is 10 minutes of taking it easy, not 10 minutes of intense cardiovascular. Otherwise, 10 minutes comes, cuts down to one. But still, if you were a normal astronaut just going about doing, you know, astronaut stuff, which is, you know, experiments, that kind of thing. And yes, you, you, this that five grams worth of oxygen will give you about 10 minutes uh, worth of um, breathable air, which is which I think is remarkable. Now, in terms of how uh, MOXIE works, uh, we have to look at the Martian atmosphere. So by composition, uh, Mars's atmosphere is about 96% carbon dioxide. Ooh. Now, humans plus carbon dioxide, we don't get along all that well. Yeah, that is not nice for humans because carbon dioxide is particularly nasty for us. You know, it's not just the lack of oxygen that's going to kill us there. Even that much carbon dioxide, even if we had 
I mean, even if it was say 70% carbon dioxide and 20% oxygen, that would still be, it would still be bad. Yeah. So you're quite right. And and that's part of the challenge of sending astronauts out to Mars, because you can't exactly, I mean, there are a whole number of things, but you can't just get to Mars and pop out your spaceship and just walk around. You'd have to wear a spacesuit to provide you with air to breathe. So if we look at uh, carbon dioxide itself, it's a molecule and it consists of one carbon atom and uh, two oxygen atoms, so CO2. So what MOXIE does is it works by separating the oxygen atoms from the molecules of carbon dioxide, and it ends up releasing carbon monoxide. So that would be CO, so one carbon atom, one oxygen atom. And so that's the sort of waste product that gets produced um, as a result of this process. Now, in order to be able to do this, uh, MOXIE has to get really, really hot. It needs to reach a temperature of 800 degrees Celsius. On Mars as well. So, yeah. So at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, that's quite hot. And it can't be good for the surrounding instruments on board that rover. I was thinking that. I was, I mean, is it like in a little tug that they put it, the rover pulls behind it? So it's like far away from it. So it melts the rover on Mars. Well, so... What they've had to do is MOXIE has had to be designed, of course, to be able to do this experiment, but protect every other vital component on, on that rover. So uh, MOXIE is built with heat, um, with heat tolerant materials, including, and I'll know that you will like this, Bryony, 3D printed nickel alloy parts. So a little bit of 3D printing going on there to to build MOXIE. And the instrument also uses aerogel. And that keeps in the heat. So, okay, aerogel is is awesome. If you've never seen it, so for any listener, if you've never seen aerogel, do yourself a favor right now, pause the podcast. Well, no, don't pause it yet. Wait until I've explained how to do this. Otherwise, yeah, I'm going to get stuck in a loop here. So do yourself a favor, head to your favorite web browser and search for it. And then pause the podcast and come back to it once you've had a look at aerogel. Because aerogel is composed of up to 99% of air by volume, but it's still a solid material. Not just that, it can be made to be very strong as well. So try and wrap your mind around something that's like mostly air, but is incredibly strong. But it's also one of the best insulating materials around. So um, you've got these heat tolerant uh, materials inside this instrument. You've got aerogel. But MOXIE has also got a gold coating on its outside to reflect infrared heat to protect the other instruments. So what you do is you don't want any of that heat radiating outwards. So you basically have it reflect off of this gold coating. So that's that's how you protect those other instruments from this thing that's getting up to 800 degrees Celsius, which I remember reading that. And at first I thought maybe, maybe MOXIE could have 
like you said, could have been towed along or something like that. Something that does come to my mind, though, is when you say that the byproduct is carbon monoxide. Now, carbon monoxide is also famously not a great gas for humans. Yeah, it's also not a, not a good one. So something that I suspect, because this is a technology demonstrator, will be to look at what they can do with all of these waste products as well because yeah you don't want to make you don't want to go from carbon dioxide to oh it's okay there's just carbon monoxide outside which is <laughs> which is also not good so mm-hmm. that would that would defeat the purpose really so i think there'll be a lot of work looking at what they can do with those uh, with the waste products as well that come that come out of it mm-hmm. but the fact that we can get it at all is amazing yeah this is the thing about the experiment. I thought why I wanted to talk about it because it's very important and because it's a very good demonstrator. And I'll, and I'll touch on the reason why this is a good technology demonstrator a bit later on. But it's done one successful run so far, but it actually has a couple of other oxygen production runs coming up. And one of them is going to be to look at running MOXIE in varying atmospheric conditions, such as different times of the day, and also during different seasons on Mars to see what what impact these parameters have on the ability for an instrument like this to be able to to make oxygen because that's also very important because if for example there's a seasonal factor that is something that has to be taken into account if you're going to be using this kind of technology on mars at some point in the future this is really really fascinating and is really really important for space travel i mean i think anyone who has ever heard me talk about mars knows that i'm a bit of a mars naysayer I'm a bit, bit of a pessimist there. Uh, I see a lot. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I say pessimist, but I think it's really cool because there's all these things that we don't know yet that we yeah. still need to figure out. There's so still so much more work to be done. It's not just sort of this, oh, it's, you know, oh, it's just, you know, engineers calculating things now, blah, blah. Like, no, no, no. There's a lot of fundamental science that we just yeah. don't understand yet that we need to before we get there. You know, this is one of the big ones is how on earth were we going to get, I suppose, how on Mars <laughs> were we going to get oxygen there? And if you don't have yes. to oxygen, then that is massive. I mean, now we just need to figure out what else we'll breathe, but you know, that's the next step. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you raised that point because I think anybody who's probably at this point listening to all of this might go, okay, but you know, why is this a big deal to be able to make oxygen Mars? And you, and you specifically touched on that because if we want to send humans out to Mars, they are going to have to take everything with them that they will need in order to be self-sufficient on the red planet because there's there are no filling stations out there. There's no Tesco down the road. There's nothing like that. They have to take everything with them. And something they will have to take with them is oxygen because, as I said, humans plus carbon dioxide equals no, no. We don't mix all that well. But it's also important to point out that the oxygen that they'll need to take with them is not just going to be for breathing, okay? Because rocket propellant depends on oxygen too. Of course. And if you're going to bring astronauts back home, because that's always the goal, we don't, it's not going to be a one way trip. This has to be a return trip. That, that's one of the goals, is it has to be a return trip. But that means when astronauts leave the Earth, okay, they have to go with all the stuff they need to survive on Mars, but they also have to take all the bits with to get back from Mars. 
And when you start plugging that into like rocket equations, it gets it gets a bit crazy. Yeah. And I just want to give you an example. So if we're just looking only, I say only, at a four astronaut team, okay, getting them plus their rocket plus anything else they want to bring back to the earth, okay? So picture all that in your head. Getting that team plus, 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 plus from Mars back to the earth would require approximately seven tons of rocket fuel and 25 tons of oxygen okay Whoa. which means when they leave the earth to head out to mars they have to have all of that with them okay Yikes. but that means that they're probably going to need more stuff when they go because they need to be carrying all of that yeah so this is why this technology demonstrator is very important because what you're saying is there's no need to take all of that with you if you can produce it on the planet itself. And that's why this was a very important technology demonstrator. It's the first technology of its kind to be done, you know, uh, done out on another planet in our solar system. And it's, it's going to help future missions to live on other worlds using resources found on those worlds. And that's where that in situ resource utilization part of the name comes from. It's basically using local resources. That, that's effectively what you're doing. And the reason I used worlds rather than Mars is because this kind of technology can also be used on the moon because you can use lunar regolith to produce oxygen as well. Really? And that's been done. They've done laboratory testing where they've simulated that they can produce oxygen using lunar regolith. Again, huge, because obviously we want to get humans back to the moon. And I'm a firm believer in that there's no point going to Mars until you can demonstrate that you can have a successful self, a sufficient habitat on the moon. And then we go to Mars. So let's okay. start off close, so to speak, and then and then head off further out. So this technology demonstrator on Mars, plus the work that's happening on laboratories here on the Earth, is crucial for manned space exploration going forward. And of course, if I'm going to use the world, uh, the word worlds, then we start to think Even beyond better. that. We start to think bigger as well. So that's why this result is very, very exciting and something that I think I do feel it got lost a little bit I know so much has happened on Mars and it's been very exciting but this this news didn't get the attention it deserved and and, and that's why I felt I want of all the things that have happened on Mars this was the one that I wanted to talk about yeah well I I think that is very very fair and I mean I'm very glad that you did because it's just such a great story and just so amazing it's it really, it's one of those things that even me, the Mars naysayer, is like, you know what? That is a step forward. Yeah. I, I do want to do something just before I we wrap this up. There's just one thing I have to do, Bryony. Oh, no. I want to give a shout out to the teams who came up with the brilliant acronyms for the instrumentation on Perseverance. Now, although I like Moxie, my overall favorite is the ultraviolet spectrometer called Sherlock which is assisted by a camera called Watson. What? Yeah, I, I felt I had to add that to end my story that I don't know if there is a better pairing or use of words for instrumentation. So yes, Sherlock and Watson are on Mars. 
if only we could say that Sherlock and Watson had Moxie, but you know, Perseverance has Moxie, which is also pretty great as well. I mean, this just cements in my mind that this was made by some early 20th century literature nerds. Yeah. This this cements that in my view. So yeah, I mean, what better way to end story off than by appreciating some acronyms, I think. But yeah, so that was my story for this month. And as I said, again, so much has happened, but I felt as a science demonstrator, this was a very important one for the future of manned space exploration. I very much agree. Thank you very much. I mean, it was absolutely uh, fantastic to hear a little bit more, I guess, about what's surrounding it as well. You know, not just, oh, yes, Moxie, and we've created oxygen, but what does this actually mean? How much was it? And, you know, what what is the future? I, I, I guess we'll be seeing a lot more out of Moxie in the next few years. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> But that does bring us to the end of our podcast. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. I hope you guys have enjoyed not just the Cosmic Diary, but also our Cosmic News. Uh, let us know using the Twitter poll which story you thought was better, whether you uh, you think Perseverance has really got some moxie uh, or you're really proud of Voyager's Voyages. Um, oh, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I worked hard on that. But... As I said, that does bring us to a close. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again next month.